its issues with cryptocurrency and exchange is confidence, and confidence has suddenly evaporated as a result of this issue. And uh, I think it's going to be quite difficult for, for the um, people who want to set up to get a lot of support in, 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 in the next few months. Uh, and that's really the, the key is, uh, issue. Um, and, and probably for the moment, although, although Hong Kong generally has been unaffected by the FTX collapse, apparently, um, it, we nevertheless sort of have to look and see what will happen next and, and how we will go about um, ensuring that these sorts of collapses don't occur again. William, final word to you very quickly. Um, on the mainland, obviously, um, it's pretty well banned, isn't it, trading in cryptocurrencies? Yes, you know, still the case. But I think from a global investor perspective, you know, digital asset is an asset class that has made its, you know, name, and I don't think it will go away. It just, you know, needs some rec- more regulations. Okay, well, thank you for your thoughts. That was William Ma, Chief Investment Officer at Grow Investment Group. You also heard Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant Stuart Aldcroft and our International Economics Correspondent, Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Quick look around markets in the Asia-Pacific region this morning. In Australia, slipping further into the red, the SX200 down half a percent. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan is now down 0.8%. The Cosby uh, down almost 1%. And looks like Hong Kong stocks are going to slide at the open with the Hang Seng down about 120 points. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Please join me then. Stay tuned for Back Chat after the news with Jim Gordon and Danny Gittings. The weather forecast. Mainly cloudy, one or two light rain patches in the morning. Sunny intervals during the day. The maximum temperature is going to be around 26 degrees. And then the outlook is for it to be mainly cloudy on Thursday. And then sunny periods in the following few days. Temperature right now is 23 degrees, 84% relative humidity. Time's 8.32. Here's Barry O'Rourke with our half-hour news. The government says it vehemently refutes a report by a U.S. congressional committee saying its comments were slanderous and ill-intentioned. It urged the United States to stop maliciously interfering in Hong Kong affairs. Vicky Wong reports. The government says the United States-China Economic and Security Review Commission has again made up excuses which deviate from the facts to maliciously slander the national security law. It said all actions by law enforcement agencies were evidence-based and law-abiding. Meanwhile, the SAR had an independent judiciary and the government was firmly committed to upholding the rights and freedoms enjoyed by Hong Kong residents. The government also defended electoral changes that ensure patriots administer Hong Kong. It said no one in any region in the world would allow political power to fall into the hands of forces who betray their own country. It described recent LegCo and chief executive elections as open, fair and honest, demonstrating broad representation and political inclusiveness. Poland says it's putting some military units on a heightened state of alert after an explosion killed two people near the border with Ukraine. Unconfirmed reports say the blast may have been caused by a stray Russian missile. Poland's National Security Council has been holding an emergency session and President Andrzej Duda has been talking to President Biden. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said the alliance was monitoring the situation. The BBC's Jeremy Bowen has this report. Working out exactly what happened is vital. The North Atlantic Treaty says an attack on one member is an attack on the whole alliance. It follows a day of missile attacks on Ukraine, one of the biggest since the war began. Most of Ukraine's major cities were hit. 
Attacking the infrastructure of a city is a common tactic in war, trying to pressure a government by making the lives of civilians hard. Ukraine's president said it wouldn't work. Russia's defense ministry has said there were no missile strikes near the Poland-Ukraine border and called the reports a provocation. Divisions over Ukraine overshadowed the first full day of talks in Bali between leaders of the group of 20 major economies. A draft communique said most G20 members condemned Moscow but also acknowledged other assessments. The BBC's Jonathan Head reports from Bali. Russia is a member of the group and while President Putin stayed away from this meeting, he was represented by his foreign minister Sergei Lavrov. He had to listen to his government being denounced by some G20 leaders and to an impassioned speech delivered from Kiev via video link by President Zelensky. Western leaders want this gathering of the world's largest economies to deliver a resounding condemnation of Russia's actions in Ukraine, which they blame for many of the problems which are being discussed here. Mr Lavrov accused them of politicising the summit. We'll have more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. I'm Danny Gittings. With me this morning is Jim Gould. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. In our main topic this morning, we'll be talking about Sino-US relations after Monday's successful summit between President Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. President Biden promised there would be no new Cold War with China, while President Xi said the world is big enough for both China and the United States to prosper. President Xi also stressed that differences between the two countries should not be an obstacle to growing relations. The two leaders were meeting on the sidelines of this week's G20 summit on the Indonesian island of Bali in their first face-to-face -face meeting since Mr. Biden became president. So what can we learn from this meeting and are Sino-US relations back on track? Later in the programme, we'll also be looking at new guidelines on equal access to justice for people with hearing disabilities. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call. The number there, 233-88266. Our guest in the main segment of the show this morning, we have Mark O'Neill, author and China analyst. Uh, we have Dr. Joseph Gregory Mahoney, who is Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University in Shanghai. And we also have Li Hak Ying. Li Hak Ying is Associate Professor at Department of International Relations at Tokyo International University. Oh, good morning, uh, everybody. Uh, Mark O'Neill, perhaps we can come to you first. Hello. Good morning, yes. Yeah, Hi. Yeah, Mark, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, so lots and lots of uh, positive analysis uh, following this meeting between the two presidents on Monday. I mean, um, do you think that a corner has been turned for China-US relations? No, I don't think so. I think, obviously, it was very important the two men face to fa met face-to-face. -face. It's the first time they've done so since Biden took power. The, the, the exterior signs are very good. They smile. The, the meeting lasted for three hours. Um, but we don't have very much concrete positives to come out of it. One of them is the promise that senior officials from the two sides will meet to talk about climate change, economic stability, health and food security, and that Mr. Blinken will go to China soon. So these are specific benefits of the talks. But, of course, on the main issues, uh, there was no progress. For instance, on the question of Taiwan, on the question of the, uh, the chip sanctions which the U.S. Uh, imposed in, in, in October and are sweeping, I mean, extraordinary, nor on the, tra on the, the tariffs which China wants reduced, wants America to reduce. So 
So definitely positive that they had a meeting, definitely positive that there will be talks by lower-level officials on a regular basis. But uh, no, I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a landmark or not a change. Mm. Of course, a lot of people are saying the proof of um, the results of this meeting will come in six or 12 months' time, Mark O'Neill. Yes. Well, well uh, I mean, the, the, the key issue for both is Taiwan. And from what I read, uh, Mr. Biden and Mr. Xi both restated their positions on Taiwan very firmly. Um, Biden has said four times that if China attacks Taiwan, the U.S. will uh, intervene militarily, which means we have a war between China and the United States. So this is extremely serious. But uh, there was nothing in the comments which Mr. Xi made that indicate any uh, concession or stepping back from China's position on this. So um, that, that's extremely grave, and I don't think in six or 12 months, there'll be any change in that. The situation remains extremely uh, dangerous. Mm. Uh, well, well, let's ask our other guests, uh, Joseph Gregory Mahoney. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, so how, how do you see the picture now between uh, uh, China and the US? I, I largely agree with Mark. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, many of us uh, were hoping for is that we wouldn't see more damage done at this meeting, um, I think it's. Uh, I don't think anyone really expected any breakthroughs. I don't think anyone is really convinced that that um, Washington at this point is looking for a breakthrough. In so much as there seems to be a very clear uh, containment strategy that's being um, uh, deployed at that present and, and stepping forward month uh, after month, if not week after week, in terms of new developments. Um, and I think all all indications is that this this trend and, and, and associated trajectories will continue. Um, and I think uh, Beijing is very well aware of that. And, and I think you, if you look at a lot of the comments that are being published in state media uh, out of Beijing in the last day, they're they're all saying it's marvelous that they met, but it's marvelous that Biden said a few things, but but nothing has really changed. And and uh, it would be great if, if the United States actually. Um, uh, would, would conform to uh, its language. The, the one positive that, that I would note, um, and it is related to Taiwan, is that we know that uh, military leaders um, uh, uh, in, in the United States as recently in, as the past month um, were saying that uh, maybe China has imminent plans to attack Taiwan, maybe later this year, maybe next year. And uh, Biden acknowledged at the meeting that, uh, that that's not the case, that they don't believe China has this intention. So maybe that takes a little bit of the, the, the pressure off. But it's really hard to say because there's so much doublespeak that we get. You know, on the one hand, uh, Biden says we respect the one-China policy. Nothing has really changed. But, but again, uh, from, the, from the Chinese perspective, with, whether it's uh, uh, undermining the principles of strategic ambiguity, uh, including uh, uh, saying that we will definitely that, that the U.S. will definitely intervene if, if China's attacked, or uh, with Pelosi uh, visiting, or uh, other senior uh, officials, including members of Biden's administration, uh, including reports that U.S. military are already in Taipei. All of these things are, are, are seen as, as not respecting the one-China policy um, in tandem with 
other actions related to Hong Kong, Xinjiang and Tibet. So, Professor Mahoney, if things haven't really changed, how, how do we explain the sort of more positive language, particularly on the, the Chinese side? I was looking at analysis of the, um, of the statement uh, issued by the Chinese side after the meeting, pointing out that um, it used terms like constructive this time, which wasn't used uh, when the two leaders last spoke, and that the statement was much longer, and it said that U.S. must abide by the one-China policy rather than saying that the U.S. must abide by the one-China principle. So people often see a or distinction between the two. So that's, that's, that's at least the, the tone coming out of certainly the Chinese side and probably also the US side is more positive this time. Well, how do we explain that if nothing much has really changed? I think that's a good question. Uh, I think that, you know, there's, there is this, you know, I don't want to try to, to, to explain the psychology of, of, of Beijing diplomatic talk, but, you know, I think that there was this very positive, very cordial uh, uh, photo op, you know, there's, there's this desire by both sides, especially the American side, to, to seem reasonable, to seem humane, to seem like they're trying to, um, uh, take the higher ground. Um, and so you have to be very careful about how you represent, um, what are some of the positives, right? And so if you have, uh, Biden saying, okay, well, um, you know, as he, as he warmly greeted uh, uh, President Xi, as he congratulated him on his re-election, uh, all of these things are, are very positive, and, and, and the Chinese side wants to, to acknowledge that, but also uh, they have to acknowledge it in, in the broader global discourse, because everyone is sort of watching right now. These, these, are, these are, you know, this relationship is first and foremost on a lot of people's minds. Um, so, you know, you have to, you have to have this, this generally positive reception of some of the positives. But at the same time, if you get to the deeper level and you start parsing, nothing really has changed, right? I mean, everyone wants something positive. Everyone wants to read something into it. But we've been doing that for the past two years with Biden, uh, after the, the, the terrible four years with Trump, thinking, okay, well, maybe we will turn a corner now. And at each point, we've been disappointed further. So I think, if not cynicism, there's just a tremendous amount of caution, uh, coupled with, you know, a desire for things to be better, but no real conviction that they will be. Okay, we're discussing Sino-US relations after the uh, Biden-Xi summit. Um, if you have any thoughts, do email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or you can leave a message on our Facebook page, backchat on rthk radio free. You just heard um, Dr. Um, Joseph Gregory Mahoney from uh, East China Normal University in Shanghai. And now let, let's bring in the, the third of our guests, uh, Li Hak Yin, who is Associate Professor at the Department of International Relations at Tokyo International University. Uh, Professor Li, um, what, what's your take on the, uh, the, the Xi Biden summit? Yes, thank you. Um, I would say that I'm also a little bit pessimistic about the future because there's no fundamental change regarding the bilateral relationship. Well, let's say it this way. Um, we have a lot of those uh, positive uh, feedback for both sides. It's uh, constructive for them to talk. But uh, this is not uh, more than something what we call the conflict management. The two sides want to talk, want to have the dialogue because they want to contain that kind of uh, potential escalations which can end up in sudden war between the two sides here. So I would say that the talk here is not really for, you know, uh, understanding or building a common consensus. This is a kind of, you know, a containment strategy. How could they cope with the conflicts between themselves here? Uh, another point here is, sorry, yes, please go ahead. No, no, please continue. Okay. Yes. Another, point, another point that I have here would be, um, I, I would suggest that uh, the meeting looks like the more they communicate, actually, the harder they come up with the common consensus here. 
if you uh, check the two countries' uh, profile history, the past bilateral relationship, actually the two sides cannot actually uh, convince each other. So let's say the matter here is not because they do not have any communications or, or they have lack of communications here, but vice versa. They know each other too well that each other will not be changed by other side, and one side cannot convince the other side regarding their intentions, and both sides cannot socialize each other here. So let's say American military perspective on the Western power will be you know, so strong in the state. They believe that China is going to change the state fundamentally, and the two sides they have fundamental differences. Uh, they have different preferences on international issues, human rights, democracy, and they have fundamental differences on the identity and norms here. So Xi Jinping actually attempt to convince the state in the past by saying that we can have the new type of great power relationship, we can avoid a uh, serious-sum game approach here, the world is big enough for the two sides here, uh, and most versa, China uh, also insists that they won't be changed, they won't be socialized because they have their own independent path of development here. So if you base on this kind of approach, the two sides actually have no contact point, and in the future, uh, or definitely in the long run, they couldn't solve it, so I would be pessimistic regarding that kind of bilateral relationship. Uh, there will be a conflict in the long term. I mean, the, the White House uh, did say in a statement afterwards that uh, uh, President Biden said there, there were issues the two sides uh, should work together on, such as uh, climate change, uh, global economic stability, uh, health security, food supplies, and so on. I mean, I mean, uh, are, are there areas? I, I mean, is it possible for the two sides to work together on those areas, um, at least partially successfully going forward? in a regional perspective here. So let's say China got the leverage over you know, North Korea, Ukraine, uh, because they have the relationship with Russia. They can work on climate change and global supply here, but it won't change anything regarding the fundamental competitions in the system. Because the two sides, they have you know, a lot of those structural differences regarding how they perceive each other. So let's say the state would suspect that China is going to change the whole world or the coming future. And once versa, China uh, also would say that uh, they would have their own uh, values and norms that they want to pursue in the system. So I would say that you can have some cooperation, but in the long run, the structural change is still out there. So it cannot be modified, it cannot be, you know, changed. So that's why I would say that I'm a pessimist in the issue here. You mentioned Ukraine. Of course, there's a rather interesting issue about Ukraine because the Americans said that the two sides had agreed that um, uh, nuclear, Russia should not use nuclear weapons in, in Ukraine. But uh, this was absent from the uh, Chinese account of the meeting. Um, your, your thoughts, Professor Lee? Well, I, I guess that China was that was a little bit in the middle. Uh, it's a kind of middleman between, uh, let's say, Russia and the state. But they have to be very cautious regarding the use of the terms and words and regarding that kind of nuclear power, nuclear weapons used uh, in the battlefield because it's going to touch the nerve of the Russian you know, government. And that's why they tend to be much more cautious regarding how they deal with the state. And on the other hand, to present that China would not be on the side of the state so that you keep that kind of leverage and you can talk to the Russian counterparts here. So that would how could they position themselves between the two sides here? Uh, let's bring in Mark O'Neill on that point. I mean, because Mark O'Neill, you're very experienced in analysing these statements that come out from both sides after summits. And um, on, on the Ukraine, there, there was a difference in the statements between the two sides. Well, yeah, because the two sides have fundamentally different views of the war. Uh, I mean, the U.S. follows the Western view that this is entirely the result of aggression by one man, Mr. Vladimir Putin, and he holds the complete responsibility for all the deaths and the war crimes and so forth in Ukraine, 
whereas the Chinese analysis is much closer to the Russian one, which is that this is not something that just started on February the 24th. It's a result of a long-term uh, escalation by NATO to surround uh, Russia and uh, include Ukraine in NATO, so that the blame is, is, is shared between the different sides. So although I think China is very embarrassed now, it's more and more unhappy with how the war is going, um, the defeat by Russia, the defeat of Russia on the battlefield, the nuclear threats by Putin. Uh, and I, I mean, I hear a lot of rumors that, uh, you know, in February when Putin was in Beijing for the Olympics, he met Mr. Xi. And what did he tell him? Uh, either he told him nothing, which would be a betrayal of, you know, your best friend, or he told him, we, we plan to invade Ukraine, the war will be over in a week, don't worry about it. If you told him that, that was a, a, a lie. So, yeah, I, I hear rumors that, uh, you know, Beijing is very unhappy with the way Putin explained things to them in, in February. But at the moment, publicly, the, 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 the Chinese position remains the same. And, for instance, the UN just had a vote yesterday on whether Russia should pay uh, reparations from its reserves to rebuild Ukraine. And most countries in the UN voted for this or abstained, but China voted against it. So, you know, the US and China, their views on, you, on the Ukraine war are still fundamentally different. Uh, Joseph Gregory Mahoney, I, I mean, Professor Xi said that uh, China supported, looked forward to a resumption of peace talks between Russia and Ukraine, which is its um, uh, long-standing position. I mean, do, do you expect to see any change in the, uh, Russia's position towards uh, what's happening in Ukraine? I mean, uh, to, uh, China's position? Uh, you know, I think that the important point to note is that when Schultz came to um, China, that the, the big statement that was really picked up by a lot of media was that um, is that she rather unambiguously said with Schultz that, that China was opposed not only to nuclear war, but threats of nuclear war. Um, I think the the issue with the reporting on the on the Chinese side or the readout of the meeting between Xi and Biden is, of course, that that China doesn't like being sucked into the American narrative and uh, the way the U.S. frames the discussion, the way they describe it, uh, the specific terms they use. It's it's not surprising to me that uh, that China would would avoid being drawn into that discussion on those terms especially since, you know, a week ago or two weeks ago, this was uh, the headline and, and, and she had made it clear uh, in, in global media. So uh, I don't think that, you know, this, this desire, this, this, you know, as we're seeing again at the G20, this, to, to sort of perpetually beat this drum and, and try to uh, discipline people into the, the, the Western narrative on Ukraine, um, to, to a certain extent, China's going to resist this. Um, you know, I think uh, you, you asked the question uh, a moment ago about um, were there areas for, for cooperation, <clears throat> and um, um, the, the issue of climate change was raised. Uh, the, the two biggest pressing issues between the two countries for, for a lot of people that they get straight to 
um, the most sensitive and, and, and uh, the sensitive areas that, that are related to existential concerns. Firstly, can we see a resumption of cooperation over climate change? And secondly, can we have military uh, to military communication so that we can avoid, uh, you know, possible um, uh, bumps or, or, uh, or, or frictions that might spiral out of control? And uh, these things remain suspended, right? But the point I want to make on, on climate change, because we just had COP27, yeah. is that I, I get the sense that there's a growing doubt in Beijing uh, about whether or not uh, the West, including the United States, but, but also Europe, whether or not they, they remain sincere um, uh, about climate change and committed to climate change, and whether or not uh, bilateral negotiations on climate change which are suspended between China and ICE because of the Pelosi visit. Um, what is the meaning of resuming these when we see uh, Europe returning to coal, when we see um, um, uh, you know, Europe buying coal out of Africa but, but uh, preventing aid to Africa that might use fossil energy? There's this, this, this growing narrative that, that in some way um, the climate change is, is, you know, and I'm not saying that it is, but there's this growing suspicion that that maybe the climate change discussions are really about trying to curtail uh, the development of the uh, of the third world, uh, the, the curtail uh, China's growth, in tandem with things like uh, uh, the, the chip uh, restrictions that are again uh, seen as trying to um, um, as a type of economic warfare against China's high tech growth and development at this stage of its. Sorry, Professor Mahoney, but uh, climate change negotiations is one area where they, they, did, they did say that they would reopen negotiations. Um, uh, there's nothing on military-to-military -military contact, but um, uh, climate change yeah, negotiations... I think, I think what they said is they would... I think what they said is they would meet to discuss... <laughs> OK, right. You're very good at re refining these statements. So uh, let, let, let's, let's go back to um, uh, Li, Li Hak-Yin. Um, uh, Professor Lee, how, how do you interpret um, the, the, the movement on things like climate change and military-to-military -military cooperation? Well, we're getting climate change here. China uh, actually responds quite interestingly. Uh, they said that actually um, they would not invest any funding, or they would not provide any funding regarding the American proposals that they would have a scheme so that they help your other countries uh, to, let's say, transform their energy sources from fossil fuels to green, um, let's say, um, use of those energy. So uh, China would say that no, because China is still a developing country. So it seems like, you know, yes, they would have cooperation, but how would they cooperate and in what level that China would engage in that American business in cooperation is still a question mark here. So that would be regarding that kind of, you know, a little bit fundamental differences uh, on climate change, regarding who's going to uh, sponsor or help uh, other countries. Um, military to military relationship here, but I would suggest that uh, basically the two sides would like to have dialogue. Uh, and they also have the hotline, they also have some sorts of, you know, uh, channels. But it seems like everything changed because of the, you know, U.S. policy to Taiwan recently. And uh, it's not that uh, healthy white style, we say, because you have uh, stopped all those exchanges between two sides. Um, another thing, because of Taiwan, I guess that the meeting between Biden and Xi Jinping perhaps is going to uh, perhaps uh, turning something uh, bad in the future. Uh, the reason here is that if you look at the statement of the Chinese government one day after the bilateral summit, the Chinese statement, uh, when they quote uh, Xi Jinping instead, they warned Joe Biden's policy on Taiwan. Uh, they said that U.S. would match its word with actions. So um, it means that from the Chinese 
perhaps ready to exchange or much more cooperation in the coming future in that area. Because that would be quite sensitive. And China has been using that kind of mutual exchange as a kind of leverage uh, to show that the two sides actually they have uh, ups and downs in the, in the bilateral relationship. So uh, that's why I would suggest that in the coming future, unless the state really would have something matched with its work with actions, otherwise China would not you know, change that kind of areas in terms of cooperation, and you still have a pretty much, you know, uh, hostile competitions, you know, um, between the two sides there. But that would be gesture. Uh, so they make use of that kind of gesture. They try to uh, request, they try to demand the state to do something uh, so that, you know, uh, you can solve that power dispute, at least for right now, and then they can settle other things later. So it's basically a watch and wait, is it? Is that a, way, a, fair, a fair way to summarise it, Professor Lee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that watch and wait would be depending on, uh, let's say, how the state would understand the Chinese uh, request. Because right now the Chinese presumes that you have hypocritical agenda behind the state. They always uh, have the gap between the principle and practices. So Joe Biden mentioned a lot of time that uh, the state is going to help Taiwan if there would be military conflict. But um, and and in, and in, and the other time that you know the message uh, of state. Uh, they issued the statement like uh, the state still followed the one China policy. So from the China okay. side, uh, there would be meditations regarding that kind of you okay. know, policy gesture. Uh, yeah, so they really need to deliver, I would say, yeah. unless uh, otherwise... Okay, well, we'll have to break there. Uh, thank, thank you very much, Professor Lee, and we're, we're saying goodbye to uh, Lee Hak-Yin, but uh, Mark O'Neill and uh, Dr Joseph Gregory Mahoney are staying with us, and we'll continue the discussion after the news on the Biden-Xi summit, uh, later looking at some new uh, Equal Opportunities Guidelines on Equal Assets to Justice for People with Hearing Disabilities. Do email us at blackjack at rthk.hk, or you can put a message on our Facebook page, blackjack on rthk radio free. Uh, the weather forecast... Mainly cloudy, one or two light rain patches uh, and sunny intervals during the day. Currently 24 degrees, relative humidity 83%. Listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back to Backchat. I'm Danny Gittings, and with me this morning, Jim Gould. In the uh, second half of the show, we're continuing our discussion about uh, the uh, successful summit uh, between President Xi Jinping and uh, Bo- Joe Biden. Uh, a lot of um, uh, positive language coming out of that summit, although the message we're hearing from our guests this morning is that maybe not so much has changed in the uh, fundamentals underneath. Um, uh, later in the programme, we're going to be looking at new guidelines on equal access to justice for people with hearing disabilities. If you have any thoughts on either topic uh, do email us at backchat at rthk.hk that's backchat at rthk.hk or you can leave a message on our facebook page backchat on rthk radio free or give us a call the number there 233 continuing the discussion we still have with us uh, mark o'neill author and china analyst and uh, dr joseph gregory mahoney professor of politics and international relations at east china normal university in shanghai um, Mark O'Neill, much was made of the announcement last month by the US that it was limiting uh, China's access to a technology used in the manufacture of semiconductors. I mean, um, how significant is, is this in terms of well, what's being seen as like further economic decoupling and how is that going to affect the uh, relationship? Well, I think it's extremely significant. If you remember in 1940... <clears throat> The Japanese military attacked uh, Vietnam against the uh, advice of the United States. Um, And in retaliation, the U.S. blocked exports of oil. And as you know, Japan has no oil and depends entirely on imports. So 
many Japanese regard that as the start of the Asia-Pacific War. In other words, the attack on Pearl Harbor was the result of the U.S. attempt to block Japan from uh, receiving oil. Um, so this, this measure in many senses is similar to that because we call semiconductors now the new oil because semiconductors is used in everything. It's used in, 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 in jet fighters, in um, televisions, mobile phones, cars, in all kinds of products. So the U.S. attempt is very clear. They don't want the, uh, China to be able to produce or to import the high-end semiconductors. And the, the measure was so sweeping. In other words, it's not just exports of products from the United States, but it's from from machines using U.S. equipment, mm. and it also covers what they called U.S. persons. This is not only uh, American citizens, but people with, uh, with green cards. So, as we've seen, companies in uh, Taiwan, in Japan, Holland, you know, countries that use U.S. technologies and then sell to China, they, they're now in, in a great confusion trying to work out how to follow the these uh, instructions from America, but at the same time preserve their Chinese clients, and China is a very important customer for them. So this is an extremely aggressive and, and, and sweeping measure. And so far, China has reacted very cautiously to it, and I'm quite surprised because it's so sweeping. Um, now, if we look at, look at this measure on the other way, um, case of rare earths, for example, China is the dominant world producer in rare earths, yes. especially lithium. So China could decide to cut exports of lithium or all rare earth exports to the United States. That would be a comparable retaliation. So I, 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 that's the reality of what's going on. So I think that's uh, much more important than the meeting that we had in Bali. In that case, why why wasn't China sort of making more of that at the meeting and uh, sort of uh, vociferously uh, demanding that Joe, Joe Biden reverse these measures? Well, I, I, I find that puzzling. I mean, China has said that publicly before when, when, the, when the measures were announced and China denounced them. So, um, yes, I'm, I, I'm surprised it wasn't, it wasn't raised or maybe it was raised and it was not mentioned in the final communique. Uh, Dr. Mahoney, any thoughts on the, the semiconductor issue? Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts. The first is, you know, if we look at uh, the, the broader history of, of what China considers to be, you know, the, the, the century of humiliation and now and now driving towards rejuvenation, uh, if we go back to the to the heart of the contradiction that led China into that vulnerable position in the early 1800s, it was a profound technology gap that left China vulnerable to uh, more advanced uh, industrial technological societies coming out of Europe, and then. Japan rapidly transformed itself uh, to the point that by 1895 it was able to force its position on China as well and thereafter. So, you know, this, this idea that uh, if we go back and we look at, at uh, China's historical development throughout the modern period, it's, it's always been in one form or another about transforming itself as a technological society, and not just in terms of technology stocks, but also how your society functions how your society is organized, how government is organized, how it all works together to um, overcome these vulnerabilities and, and uh, reestablish sovereignty and security. 
you know, before, um, you know, we, all, we all know that, that the United States uh, really, some people say, began to take significant steps backwards uh, after 9-11, but then after 2008. But I think there was, a still, there was still this profound hope that China would falter and stumble, that the, that the political gridlock that had gripped China uh, prior to, to Xi Jinping taking power would be the breaking point of the Communist Party, that this had been long predicted by a lot of experts. Um, and it, it didn't happen. And so uh, as, as we're reaching the, 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 the initial, you know, fruits of, of Xi's anti-corruption campaign or party rectification campaign, that's when we begin to see this idea of a pivot coming out of uh, the Obama administration, which Biden was a part of, and then really accelerating uh, during the Trump administration and, um, um, uh, again, with Biden. Um, so the, the idea that, that we are now returning to tech and, and what um, what I've called xenotechnophobia uh, and, and what Max Meyer and I out of the University of Bonn have written as uh, digital orientalism, all of these things are in some way trying to restrict uh, and slow China's rise as a technological society because this is the advantage that the U.S. has held, the West has held, you know, since the 1800s. So that all seems, you know, rather strategic and logical. Now, why China isn't perhaps talking about this uh, more, um, I suspect there are two reasons. Um, I, I, my sense is um, that China is a little more confident in its ability to solve this problem, and uh, so they're not going to make much out of it until they, they reveal that. Or <laughs> the opposite interpretation, which is China doesn't generally talk much about vulnerabilities until it has a solution. Um, there, there are lots of other vulnerabilities oh. that China has. That, that, that so they're biding their time, basically. Right. You're saying they're biding their time until they have a solution, and that's why there's, there's no point really to, to, to raise it. They either have a solution and, they, and they're not ready to talk about it, or they're, or they're biding their time until they do. Okay, that's an interesting point. Um, uh, Mark O'Neill, one thing we haven't talked about uh, so far is the uh, possible impact of the uh, U.S. midterm elections on Sino-U.S. relations. I mean, although the Democrats did better than expected, the Republicans have uh, re retaken the House, and we're already hearing suggestions that uh, the new Speaker of the House, or like the new Speaker of the House, uh, Republican Kevin McCarthy, wants to do what Nancy Pelosi did and visit Taiwan in the coming months. Um, we saw what happened when she did, did that. I mean, are there flashpoints? ahead? Oh, certainly, yes, um, because uh, um, McCarthy thinks if he visits Taiwan, it'll be a big vote winner at home. And, you know, everyone's preparing for the 2024 election. And so uh, I don't think it will make very much difference whether it's President Biden in 2024 or President Trump or President uh, DeSantos. I think there seems to be very broad um, unanimity about China policy. Um, if so, there's unanimity, then it shouldn't make that much difference if you have a Republican House. Yeah, on, on China, yeah, yeah, I don't think it'll make, I mean, of course, it'll make a difference on many other policies. But no, I think on China, there won't be very much difference. So from the Chinese perspective, uh, the, the outcome of the midterms was not so significant. Uh, how about uh, um, uh, Dr. Mahoney? How, what are your thoughts on the, the uh, midterms and a possible visit by um, Speaker, as he's likely to be Speaker McCarthy, to uh, to Taiwan? I think I think the outcome is, has two potential effects. First, obviously, if McCarthy comes and, and Pelosi has set that standard that, that now Republicans feel they will have to meet, even though they criticized her when she came, um, that that will just be be more fuel on the fire. Um, but more importantly, uh, 
what we'll see with a Republican House, our budgetary constraints imposed on Biden, we'll see his legislation not getting through Congress. He'll resort to ruling by executive order. He'll turn more to foreign policy in order to demonstrate power. And the one issue that he can really rally Americans behind at this point is being aggressive towards China. So, yeah, I think that uh, uh, we'll see the two parties competing over who can be tougher against China, and then we'll see Biden trying to exercise power because his domestic power is curtailed in foreign relations and being aggressive towards China. So I think uh, that's the general trend. I think Beijing understands this. Uh, but again, you know... Yeah, sorry, let's follow up with that. You say... Yeah. You say well, Beijing yeah. understands that, um, that yeah, because they follow American politics pretty closely. So, so they must know they're going into this, uh, this, this, this tense period. But at the same time, they send out positive signals. Well, why not send out a positive signal that, that you're open to, to positive things, especially right before you know things are about to, to hit the fan? You know, I mean, and, and then you can say, well, you know, this is what you said, but this is what you did. And we already see that narrative shaping up, you know, uh, do what you say. That's, that's the, the message out of Beijing today and yesterday. So can we expect uh, more difficult times ahead from what you're both saying? Uh, uh, categorically, yes. Mm. Uh -huh. Oh, no, definitely, definitely. And, uh, and Taiwan will remain the red-hot issue. And, uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats will both uh, stoke the issue. It's, it's a good vote winner at home. So, yes. And would a, would a solution to the U Ukraine war ease things at all? Well, I think for Taiwan, the best outcome is a, is a humiliating defeat for Mr. Putin, for him to fall from power. And... That, I think, would make uh, President Xi think very carefully because, um, you know, he, he sees great uh, closeness with Putin. And uh, Putin was betting on the fact that the Western alliance would not come together, would not support Ukraine significantly and over a long period, and that's not happened. So um, I think that would delay uh, military action against Taiwan. Okay, uh, just in closing, I'll just go back to uh, Professor Mahoney. Uh, just, just now, um, uh, Mark O'Neill was saying that actually maybe it doesn't really make much difference whether it's Trump or Biden or DeSantis we're now talking about in the White House. Um, would, would you agree with that? Um, I think that the, the U.S. system is, is presently uh, you know, so heavily polarized and gridlocked that it, what, what, what is significant is that we're not going to see the U.S. capable of substantial reforms at home. And the other analysis that we're seeing among various scholars around the world is that the U.S. Uh, uh, containment strategy against China is going to continue to accelerate. And we've seen some people breaking ranks, like Schultz coming, although he's, he's been very cautious in trying to play both sides, and that's understandable. But, um, you know, there's this idea that, that the U.S. is going to have to be even more coercive towards its own allies in order to make this work, and that that's where we're going to start seeing breakdown. So as the U.S. is unable to, to take care of its own business at home, as it moves back and forth, flip-flops, this house, that house, this Republican, that Republican, in climate change, out climate change, that this is going to continue to lead to this broad destabilization, at the same time put more pressure on the U.S. to take a harder approach to China, which will in turn lead them to take a harder approach towards its own allies, and that that's where we'll start getting to the fragility of uh, U.S. hegemony and uh, the possibility of, of greater tensions.
Okay, thank you very much. Uh, you, thank you very much. You just heard uh, Dr. Joseph Gregory Mahoney, who is a professor of politics and international relations at East China Normal University in Shanghai. Also with us in the, the second part of the discussion on the Xi Biden summit, uh, Mark O'Neill, author and China analyst. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Now, moving on, uh, the Equal Opportunities Commission has released a guide on equal access to justice for per persons who are deaf and hard of hearing. Of course, if you're deaf and hard of hearing, um, you face all kinds of daily obstacles, but they're, they're, facing, they're talking particularly about the uh, issues which arise that when uh, um, people in that category are involved in uh, court cases and so on. Uh, joining us uh, to explain about these um, uh, new Equal Opportunities Commission guidelines and discuss the problems that people in these categories face is uh, Doris Choi. Doris Choi is acting head of the policy research and uh, training at the Equal Opportunities Commission. Uh, good morning, Ms Choi. Morning. Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about why you, the Equal Opportunities Commission decided to focus on this particular issue at this time. Um, because I think uh, in recent reports, uh, there have been quite a few reports about uh, persons who are uh, deaf and hard of hearing. Uh, they encounter uh, some barriers during different stages of the legal proceedings uh, because due to uh, misunderstanding or miscommunication uh, of, uh, uh, of the issues. So uh, that's why we feel that uh, as, a, you know, as a commission, we are tasked to implement uh, the DDO, which is the Disability Discrimination Ordinance, and eliminate uh, disability discrimination in Hong Kong. We feel that we believe that there's a need to improve the relevant uh, legal procedures to secure the fundamental rights of uh, persons with disabilities. So have there actually been instances where people who are deaf or hard of hearing have been disadvantaged in the, in the legal process? Yes, I think, uh, well, for example, uh, in recent years, uh, well, because of the COVID, right, we all have to wear masks. And, and for example, uh, there would be a need for sensitivity. For example, uh, if uh, there are uh, audience in the court, that's uh, hard of hearing or have hearing impairment, uh, the p party involved, uh, they would have to, for example, wear transparent masks, okay, so that people who can lip read or, uh, could uh, uh, understand what is being said and what is being conveyed. That's one thing. And also, uh, they have uh, uh, encounter barriers such as um, they might not have the right uh, sign interp interpreter for them, arrange for them. And they don't know they have the right to ask for the right uh, sign interpreter because they have different variants of the language within the sign interpretation. So these are some of the things that uh, could uh, hinder the, uh, the, the, the fairness of the process. I see. I see. So you mean if, if somebody requires a, a sign interpretation in uh, Cantonese or, or English or Mandarin or something, it, it's, uh, it's going to be a, a diff difference. So, you know, they, they need what they're used to, what their own uh, language corresponds to. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, not just the language in itself, but also because, for example, even in Cantonese, uh, mm -hmm. if they request the sign language, there's no universal 
uh, uh, Cantonese sign language. They have different variants. So they, uh, that's one of uh, that's why we recommend uh, for you know in the later part of the guide that they could arrange uh, the sign interpreter and the person with hard of hearing. They could try to test out you know their language version whether they can communicate well. So that's that's uh, that's one of the things that perhaps the court might have to pay attention to. You, you raise an important point about masks, which presumably goes far beyond just uh, issues in uh, legal proceedings. It's something that um, those of us who can hear properly don't don't really think about. But it must be absolutely devastating for people with hearing loss during the pandemic. Only a t- tiny number of people wear trans- transparent masks. Exactly. So that's why I think we've also received some groups uh, reflecting that sometimes, you know, um, you know, not everything is subtitled, okay, and uh, and sometimes they have difficulty. For example, on a day-to-day basis, communicating with people uh, uh, outside, you know, not just uh, within the legal proceedings, but also, you know, on a daily basis. Mm. Uh, uh, Will this? involve a lot of training for people involved uh, in the in the legal process I mean you I know you mentioned uh, solicitors barristers judges judicial officers and uh, and what have you and then there's a series of recommendations like for instance uh, uh, attracting the attention of uh, people uh, with hearing difficulties uh, before speaking and uh, and maintaining eye contact and so on I mean I mean are, are judicial officers and others going to require a training in order to be able to do this uh, we uh, we in, we did recommend uh, different parties involved to I mean like you said uh, in the early part of the guide we uh, talk about some basic do's and don'ts and some etiquette uh, like you just mentioned but uh, we also in the later part uh, recommended for example the court to have various uh, in terms of for example hardware um, they could uh, they could at least make sure there's some uh, uh, facilities in place for example uh, there is uh, those assistance uh, uh, assistive listening devices, uh, those induction loop system in place in the court, that's the hardware part. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, you know, uh, training in terms of uh, providing judges, judicial officers and court uh, administrators, they would, it would be good that they could have some basic training of the sign language and also uh, what that entails and also the frontline services, you know, that are providing uh, services to the PW, uh, PWDs. You know, they could have the sense of awareness, what what needs to be, you know, alerted to. For example, uh, uh, if they arrange sign interpreter, you know, whether they could, the court could arrange some brief communication between them uh, before the court starts and also the different the quality, you know, whether it couldn't be assured uh, that they are translating what, that, what is being said and what is being conveyed in the court. Mm. Uh, the hardware requirement, that would also apply to uh, police stations, uh, correct? Uh, yes, actually, uh, of course, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, 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 in the guide, because uh, we, we are focusing uh, basically the legal process, but uh, we did also uh, recommend in some part of the training uh, that this, it would be appropriate to also extend the training to, you know, police office and also because that's the frontline service as well, yeah. I mean, looking at your guide, I mean, the guide also, we should mention to listeners, if um, listeners are interested in looking at the Equal Access to Justice for Persons Who Are Deaf and Hard of Hearing is available on the Equal Opportunities Commission website. When I look for your guide, a lot of the advice doesn't really seem particularly confined to legal proceedings. I mean, a lot of very basic advice uh, that you should be in a well-lit area, find a quiet area, move away from background noise and um, uh, face with good good eye contact. Um, 
Uh, again, I'm slightly puzzled why, why you're offering this advice just for legal proceedings when this would seem to be good general advice. Well, I think the first few chapters would be uh, uh, applying to all different parties. Uh, but because I think uh, um, under the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, uh, it, you know, Article 13, uh, it says that you know, um, you know, state parties would have the obligation to ensure equal access to justice for people with disabilities. And that's why uh, we feel that, of course, in some other jurisdictions, uh, perhaps, for example, in UK and uh, USA, uh, you know, perhaps the court would also issue similar guides, guidelines uh, for, for people involved in the process. So the last part of the chapter would be more <laughs> to deal with people, uh, that the recommendation we give to different parties involved. But the first five chapters that would apply to everybody, you know, every one of us who are communicating with people with, uh, who are deaf and or hard of hearing. And you mentioned the Convention on Rights and Disabilities. Earlier you mentioned the Disability uh, Discrimination Ordinance. Um, it, it's correct to say that actually, I mean, under Disability Discrimination Ordinance, um, um, parties, including the, the, the court system, don't they have, they have a legal ob obligation, don't they, to accommodate people with disabilities? Yes, uh, uh, yes, that's why uh, I think uh, yesterday I also uh, checked the judiciary website to see uh, uh, whether there's uh, some, uh, some uh, items that we suggest in place. Uh, we, I, I do found that uh, yesterday I found that there's a request for uh, court assistance for people with disabilities. There's a form that, uh, for example, people who are deaf of heart, uh, deaf or uh, hard of hearing, they could uh, make an official request uh, to the court uh, about what com accommodation they might need. For example, whether it's text-to-speech, uh, sign language, uh, you know, what I said just now about the induction uh, uh, loop system, facilities, you know, they also uh, have some uh, items for other people as well. For example, wheelchair access, uh, bringing a guide dog, and also document formats uh, with a large print forms. So, so they, they seem to also have something in place uh, to accommodate um, people with disabilities as well. And earlier on, you mentioned something that I think would be an interest to our listeners, particularly those who are not bilingual might not be aware. You said uh, there's a particular problem when it comes to Cantonese because there's no one recognised sign language. And since most court cases, or increasing number these days, are conducted in uh, Cantonese, that's presumably more and more of a problem in the legal system. Uh, yes, but I think uh, even among the sign interpreters, they have uh, some of them are specialised in a certain variant. So, for example, if they test out, they have uh, the way they communicate is they have around, for example, 10 uh, fundamental words that they communicate and see whether they get each other. And if it doesn't work, then they might need to change sign interpreter. So, so uh, we also recommend the court, for example, in complex proceedings, for example, uh, criminal or long cases, they could at least uh, not just getting the right sign interpreter, but in uh, putting in, for example, two sign interpreter in place, because it could be quite, uh, quite consuming in terms of, you know, uh, draining, in terms of doing the sign language non-stop, so interpretation non-stop. So, so that's one of the measures that we recommend as well. Mm. I see the, uh, the EOC's uh, Executive Director of Operations, uh, Ferrick Chu, uh, made an important point as well. He said that, uh, uh, pointed out that Hong Kong has an ageing population, so uh, uh, there's going to be uh, an increasing number of people with hearing difficulties uh, in coming years. So this is going to become uh, more and more of an important issue, isn't it? Uh, yes, I think uh, the um, the uh, census uh, recently has uh, 
uh, updated the definition of uh, hearing impaired, and now there's around uh, 250 uh, uh, people who are uh, deaf and hard of hearing. But of course, uh, according to the latest figures, it says around 3,000 uh, people know uh, sign language. Mm. Uh, but well, I mean, uh, I think the coming trend would be because I think the younger generation among the disability group, uh, the younger generation, they might be more in sync with uh, lip reading. So that would be a trend. And also uh, text to uh, speech uh, reporter. Uh, they could be hired in court to, for example, uh, do live captioning uh, of what is being said. And if the person is literate, then they would be able to read you know, what is going on. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that was uh, Doris Choi. Doris Choi is the acting head of uh, policy research and training at the Equal Opportunities Commission, and she was introducing the new um, guide to equal access to justice for persons who are deaf and hard of hearing, which is available on the Equal Opportunities uh, website. Uh, that's it for us today. Thank you, Jim. Uh, the uh, weather forecast, it will be mainly cloudy, uh, one or two light rain patches, but also sunny intervals. Maximum temperature will be around 26 degrees, currently 24 degrees, relative humidity 81%. The Chief Executive has delivered his first policy address. It outlines his vision to lead society to break through bottlenecks, add impetus, relieve hardship, and grasp opportunities. Hong Kong will fully and faithfully implement one country, two systems, govern to public aspirations, attract talents and business, Promote finance, innovation and technology. Cultural and creative industries. Integrate into the country's development. Increase the speed and quantity of our housing supply. Boost education and expand the talent pool. Enhance primary health care and support for the elderly, the young and the underprivileged. Clean and beautify our city. To chart a brighter tomorrow for Hong Kong. It is a policy address for Hong Kong citizens. The news with Barry O'Rourke. The government has rejected criticism in a bipartisan report from the US saying it contains slandering remarks and ill-intentioned political attacks. In a statement issued early this morning, it urged the United States to respect the basic norms governing international relations and stop maliciously interfering in Hong Kong's affairs. Poland says it's putting some military units on a heightened state of alert after an explosion killed two people near the border with Ukraine. Unconfirmed reports say the blast may have been caused by a stray Russian missile. Poland's National Security Council has been holding an emergency session and NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg said the alliance was monitoring the situation. And the European Union has made a new offer to cut carbon emissions by 57% between now and 2030. Some activists said they were not impressed by the updated goal.